Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus. Thank you for your word, the power to instruct, even the power to move us, to walk in faith. Now that we read, Lord, we want to be grateful. We want to be thankful. We want to respond rightly to all that you've done for us. So we ask that you might fill us with your spirit now. We might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, uh, Charles Dickens um, toured our country. You know, he's, of course, the British author of Christmas Carol and Great Expectations. He toured our country and uh, doing a series of lectures. And while here, he said that uh, in America, we have things a bit mixed up. He said that we only have one day for Thanksgiving. He said you ought to have 364 days in which to thank God for all that he's given you. And only one day to gripe and complain. And uh, I think that might be true. Let me ask you, though, you know, as we look forward to this weekend, um, do you think that you are a grateful person? Do you think that, um, that you're appreciative of all that you have? And, and if you do, what are you most grateful for? Are you most grateful for your job or your spouse or the home you live in or the family you have? And, and to whom are you grateful? Where is your gratitude expressed? And, and how do you express it? How do you give word to your gratitude and your thankfulness? You know, in our passage today, uh, Jesus is going to raise before us the incredible level of significance that we are grateful people, that we are um, thankful people. Especially as we approach this holiday coming up this weekend that our, our country has set aside a day to be thankful for. And uh, do we know what to do on that day? So, so if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 17. We're going to read verses 11 to 19. And uh, Jesus is, I think, going to give us some very clear instruction here. In Luke 17, 11. We read, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along the, between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, like all of the stories surrounding Christ, this is just chock full of unbelievable stuff. First, he's walking, he doesn't even name the town. It's an unnamed town. Jesus, remember in Luke 9, it says that he has resolutely set his face to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die, so he's on his way there. And he's traveling about, finishing ministry, and it says he stops in this village. We don't know the name of the village. But there he meets ten lepers. Now, you know leprosy, that word in Greek at least, can cover a multitude of skin-type diseases. We think in all likelihood it has to do with more of uh, what we call Hansen's disease now, which is the significant, the worst form of leprosy. Leprosy as a disease, or Hansen's disease, and the reason we think it's, 
It's probably the worst form is because they were keeping distance from people. Now, Hansen's disease, at least a little bit that I read on it, is simply, it begins with the bacteria. Bacteria uh, attacks the skin and the nerves, especially the nerve trunk. Muscles end up wasting away. Uh, tendons contract and, and hands begin to be more claw-like. This, um, it may start out as nodules that ulcerate and they begin to kill the skin, that it's, uh, the parts of the body that it's affecting, actually numbing the different parts that it affects. So it can't feel. So oftentimes people with leprosy in their hand, for example, will grab a pot and will be burning their skin and they won't know it because they don't feel it. And so it ends up causing great um, disfigurement to bodies. But they say that it's really death by inches. It's, it's, a tremendous, it's a tremendous disease that affects our physicality and makes us end up becoming very grotesque. But, but it's more than just a physical issue. There is an emotional part of leprosy. When you contracted leprosy, you were forced to move away from your family. You were forced to move outside the town. All fellowship, all community was cut off. That you had to scream unclean when people came around you. Now, you can just imagine the loneliness and the despair of never being able to hold your daughter or your wife or your son. You couldn't touch them anymore. I mean, it, it was a, think about it. Notice how he says, he says uh, in, in verse 16, now he was a Samaritan. You know, Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews hated Samaritans. Why are they together? Well, the disease was worse than the animosity that they had between one another. I mean, so despair and lonely causing. But it wasn't just physical and it wasn't just emotional. There was also a spiritual aspect to it. You know, when you had leprosy, you couldn't go to the temple, you couldn't offer sacrifices, you couldn't worship God. That, that oftentimes in Scripture you are to see leprosy as kind of a manifestation of sin. That they were, according to Levitical law, they were to keep their hair unkempt. They were to tear their clothes. They were to cover the lower part of their mouths and shout, unclean, unclean. It was a terrible, according to one rabbinic law, 50 yards had to be given if the wind was blowing to keep distance. It was a terrible situation, never, never to worship again. So, so I, I want you to see that while it's a physical disease, it had spiritual application. Um, I don't want you to look at this story as these people simply being um, physically challenged with leprosy. I want you to see them as kind of a picture of what sin does. You know, because because the, the nature of leprosy is like sin. Now, I don't want to attach a direct link between every physical disease is attached to some specific sin. I don't want to say that. But I do want to say that sin in general is attached to disease in general, right? You see that in Genesis chapter 3, that when sin entered the world, corruption followed, and the corruption manifests itself in disease and disaster and even death. And so what I think we're seeing here is not just a group of ten lepers, but we're seeing a people who have been separated from God and from one another by this disease. So this disease is more than a physical issue. It's a spiritual issue as well. Very representative of how people are. Remember, we're fractured from one another. We're fractured from God because of our sin. 
So they are having a desperate plight here. I mean, the physical, the emotional, and, and the spiritual. Everybody would have seen them as under the judgment of God. So that's the picture. Okay, so now he meets these lepers. And it says they lift their voices when they see Jesus. This is incredible. Uh, leprosy will often strike at the larynx, reducing your, uh, your voice to a whisper. So it's a raspy noise that they would make. And they see Jesus, and you know that he is the last hope they have to escape a living death. I mean, they would have a life of absolute isolation from God and man until they die. And so they cry out. They lift their voices because it's a right. They cry out, Master, have mercy on us. Now, I can never act these voices out well enough, but I want you in your mind. They wouldn't have just said, oh, Jesus, could you give us a hand? I mean, they're screaming at the top of their lungs, kind of like if you were somehow cast away, lost on a deserted island, and and there was a low-flying plane going overhead. You wouldn't save anything. I mean, you would be screaming and yelling with everything that you had to try to get the attention of someone that could save you. That's what they were doing. Master, have pity on us. I mean, they're screaming for compassion. They're not even asking to be healed. They're just asking for mercy and compassion. It's all they want. But notice they call him master. It's a unique word that Luke never uses for anybody else except the disciples speaking to Jesus. It's a word with weight and authority and power. They saw Jesus as somebody that could do something and something big. They're calling him master because, and it doesn't surprise us really because Jesus' ministry was known in this area and his miraculous power would have been known by these people. And so they're screaming out to him and notice what it says. Jesus turned and saw them. And he said, go show yourselves to the priest. Priest, it's amazing. You know, Jesus in chapter five healed a leper with touch. He has healed with a word of healing, but he doesn't even do any of that. Ten people, boom, he heals by just saying, go show yourself to the priest. According to Leviticus 14, the priest could not heal, but they would verify a healing. And so you would always go to the priest after being healed of leprosy so that you could reintegrate into the community. So why does he send them to the priests while they're fully leprous? Well, he's testing their faith. Do they believe that Jesus has the power to save them? He didn't pronounce a healing. He didn't lay hands. There wasn't lightning. There wasn't thunder. It was just because you're supposed to preach. Powerful miracle. Well, they must have believed because they went on the way. And it was on the way. I don't know, maybe a mile, two miles away. Perhaps the one in the back saw fingers being formed on the guy in front of him. Maybe ears coming back. Maybe the pinkish color of healthy skin. But all of a sudden, they saw it. Can you imagine? I mean, I mean it'd be like being born again. It, it would be radical. It would be absolutely over the top, exciting to be made alive again. And, and don't miss the power of a miracle. Jesus, with a word, heals 10 people. I mean, just 10. It, it wasn't like it was a stretch for him. I don't think he broke a sweat. I don't want to lose sight of the power, the the divine power displayed in Christ. 
in this situation. So that, that's kind of the scene we have here. These lepers, and Jesus turns and heals them. Now listen, when we look at miracle stories, we always want to remember that miracles point to something greater than just the miracle. So before we get too wild with the miracle, they're always pointing to something greater. I think a lot of times we don't know the purpose of a miracle, and so we are wowed by the miracle, and the miracle becomes a place of our comfort rather than Christ. And I want you to know that miracles were always pointing to a characteristic of Christ. They were always pointing to some aspect of his ministry. They were always revealing some truth about Christ. Let me try to give you some examples. So you have the, um, the miracle of when Jesus heals the paralytic, right? He's lowered down on a mat, and Jesus says that your sins are forgiven. And then, of course, the Pharisees question him and his ability to forgive sins. And he says, well, then take up your mat and go. The idea of the miracle of healing the paralytic was only to testify to the truth that Jesus had the power to forgive sins. I would argue that Jesus wouldn't have healed his legs if they didn't question his ability to forgive. Or take another miracle, the stilling of the water on the Sea of Galilee. You know, we always think, well, that means he can calm our fears. Well, if you really read the story, it says they got more scared after the miracle than before. The, the reality of it is Jesus was displaying himself as Lord of creation and that he has the power to save and that God's kingdom is going to come through in fullness and no storm can threaten the Messiah coming to redeem a people. Or take the, uh, the cleansing of the demonized. The cleansing of the demonized isn't so that the man can now have his best life. The, the, healing of the, the cleansing of the demonized is to show that Jesus Christ has power over all darkness, that anyone can rest in Christ because he has power over all darkness. The raising from the dead. All those that were raised from the dead, guess what? They all died. It wasn't about just simply raising the dead. It was that Jesus Christ is the Lord of life. That, that he is over all of life. <laughs> Same thing with the healing of the leprosy here. It isn't simply to deliver these men so that they can see their families again. It is about revealing that Christ has come to redeem us from the curse. Leprosy was a picture of the curse of sin. Jesus removing the leprosy, cleansing sin, redeeming us from the curse, and reuniting us to God and to one another. All these miracles are constantly telling you about Jesus Christ and his power and why we can believe, why we can follow him. So that's what the miracle was for. But how did they respond? Did they respond in the right manner? Well, look what happens. It says that one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God, fell on his face, gave thanks. And Jesus said, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return to give praise to God? This is the tension of the story. Actually, the story isn't so much about the power of the miracle. It's about the absolute incredulousness of Christ. You know, one, one scholar said, Jesus, who knew what was in man, is flabbergasted over no one else coming back. We're, we're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? This is the tension in the story. The ingratitude of the nine contrasted with the gratitude of the one, the Samaritan, the one who would have been least likely to come back. Why didn't they come back? I mean, can you imagine? Why wouldn't they come back? Well, actually, I kind of feel for him. 
I, I mean, I think they were grateful. I think they were happy. I, I think that they were excited. And this is the scary part of this story. And this is where I think it applies so clearly to us. They were happy. They were grateful. I think the problem is they didn't understand their real need. They, they only saw their need as skin deep. And when the healing took place, they're good to go. They're on the road. I don't think that they saw Jesus for who he really was, this Messiah coming back to reclaim the people. He was a miracle worker. They had miracle faith. They had belief in Christ to heal. But they didn't have belief in Christ as a divine Savior. And, and, and I tell you, I, I think this is where, you know, J.C. Rawls saw about this verse, he said, the lesson before us is humbling. He said, the best of us are far too like the nine. We are more ready to pray than to praise. We are more disposed to ask God for what we have not than to thank him for what we have. I, I think this is very applicable to us. I think there is a type of gratitude that we in the church have that is not biblical gratitude. It, it's a gratitude and a happiness for the gifts that we have, but not the giver of those gifts. I mean, we'll believe in Jesus, we'll turn to him when we need a job, when we get cancer, we'll turn to Christ when we have to pass a test, we'll start praying like crazy when there's an immediate need, but when that need is passed, when he answers the prayer, he's back on the shelf. You know, with, with, these, with these lepers, you know, with much of our gratitude, like their gratitude, it doesn't issue in worship. Radical, dependent obedience. It doesn't issue in mourning for sin. It just issues in thanks, and then we're moving on until the next crisis comes. And that is not a biblical gratitude. Another type of gratitude I see, really outside the church, but it's bled into the church, is this idea of, of recognizing the good things we have. And especially this time of year, we'll be very good to say, God, I'm really thankful for the parents I have. It's actually a hint to the children. The parents I have, I'm thankful for the job, the health, uh, the family that I have. Um, we can be very thankful, and God is never part of that equation. God is not central to our gratitude. It's rather just the gifts that we have been given. And, and God is strangely left absent. Even though James tells us every good and perfect gift has come from above, the Father of lights. I, I, this is why, I, even the atheists, atheists must hate Thanksgiving. They don't have anybody to thank. Or, or I guess they can thank one another, and they can thank each other, but it's void of any vertical look. It's all horizontal. Or I think another type of gratitude that we stumble over is a gratitude to God for the grace that he's given me, but it really is a spiritualized form of thanking myself. In other words, we look at our accomplishments, we look at the things we've done, and we attribute them to our hard work, we attribute them to our diligence, our investment of time, and while we will give God a nod, we really think, you know what? I did it. I was the one sweating. I worked the 70 hours a week. I, it was my idea. You know when you fight to get credit for something? Don't you ever hear that verse come in your mind, what do you have that you didn't receive? And why do you boast as though you did not receive it? There's a movie Carol and I saw a long time ago called Shenandoah. It was a classic. It was, it was in 1965. Uh, we watched it much later than that. Um, James Stewart. But, but he was a man um, who was this type of, it had a Christian veneer, but he was a self-made man. And here's the prayer that he prays in this movie. 
Lord, we cleared the land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food we were about to eat. Amen. I don't know if in our minds sometimes that might be more present, this receiving and taking credit, not realizing that every breath you draw is from him. So there are all times of, types of gratitude that are not biblical gratitude. Now here's the warning to the church. Ingratitude is a great and colossal sin. Thanklessness, in fact, is some theologians think that it's actually thanklessness which is the primal sin. It's the mother of all sins. Not lust, not pride, it's thanklessness. It's a living life apart from God. It's a living of life with me at the center and the creator. I, I, I want you to feel the weight of this. Ingratitude and thanklessness is damning. And it is reflected in the nine. They were grateful for the healing. They were thankful for getting their lives back. But they didn't receive the real healing. And that's the difference we see in the Samaritan. Jesus wants to instruct us as to what is gratitude from the Samaritan. In a way, if we were Jewish, if we were in a kind of a Jewish context here, that would have been a slap in the face to be instructed by a Samaritan. The Samaritans didn't have the law. They didn't have the covenant. They didn't have the oracles. And here he is responding in a way that the Jewish nation should have responded. It also begins to open the door for the Gentiles coming to know Christ. So how does he respond? Well, look with me. It come, he says, then one of them, the Samaritan, saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, fell on his feet, fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, what, why did he do this? I mean, what makes him so different? What did he know that would draw him back? I mean, they all were lepers, they all were walking to the priests, and they all were healed. He didn't go back to the priest. He, he, he bypassed going to the priest. He didn't go back and reunite with his family and say, I'll go back and get him later. I just got to see my wife. I haven't seen her for three years. He didn't do anything. The first thing he went back and he worshipped. I, I imagine, in, in my mind's eye, because of the way the, the scriptures word it, it says that uh, he turned back praising God with a loud voice and fell on his feet. I imagine that once they, they all together, they discovered it. He turns back and he's praising God from the point of recognizing it. And so it's not like he sees Jesus and praises God. Jesus probably hears him coming from a distance, this voice that now is no longer raspy, but totally healed. He begins praising God, and so Jesus in the distance is healing this man, praising God, getting louder with each step he comes closer to Christ, then falls at his feet and thanks Jesus for being the instrument of God to heal him. Now, what did he know? Well, I think he knew a few things. He knew that this physical healing was only a pointer to something greater. In fact, that physical healing was an invitation to something greater from Jesus. I think he knew that his problem was greater than skin deep. Even though he was a Samaritan, he still would have known that a Messiah was to come and deliver. 
I think he understood the plight he was in. I think he understood that leprosy was more than just a sickness. He could look around his world and say, this place is not the way it's supposed to be. That God has to come and redeem us. And he is the one that's been sent. I think he went back because he wanted a spiritual healing. I think he went back to be forgiven and reconciled to God. And you say, well, Tom, are you not isogeting? Are you not putting all those things in the text? Well, look at what Jesus said. He said this, we're not all ten cleansed. We're the other nine. Was no one found to return? And then he said to him, the one who came back, he said, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, the word there, it could literally translate, your faith has saved you. Now, that's a different word than your faith has cleansed you. He was cleansed. Now he's been saved. So clearly, Jesus saw him as coming back, seeking forgiveness of sins, and he's forgiven, and he's reconciled. That The Samaritan becomes a picture of gratitude for us. A, that we recognize our great need. B, that we praise God for his great act of grace to us. That we thank Jesus for being the instrument of, the, of God to bring salvation to us. And then it ends in worship. God, thank you. I mean, that is a picture of gratitude. I mean, for you and I to walk in gratitude, it has to be something analogous to this. You have to begin. I mean, to grow in gratitude, you have to understand your need. Folks, we fight so hard. This, this idea, and this is why I often take a swing at this self-esteem movement. The scripture doesn't drive us to self-esteem initially. It drives us to recognize the immensity of our problem. I mean, when you look at the world, and you look at the global crises, the financial crisis, when you look at this, the constant enduring war and conflict among men and women across countries from generation to generation, no matter how much technology we develop, no matter how intellectual and sophisticated we are, we just can't stop killing one another. The pandemics, you know, just the issues of leprosy, death, blindness, cancer, the whole thing. I mean, this is not the way the world's supposed to be. Even the non-Christian has to say, is this just like evolution having a bad day? No, this is just the world is in rebellion to God, and the fruit is all around. I mean, all of us should be driven by this fact of, God, we need to be delivered. I mean, this idea of fighting for what a good person I am seems so contrary and antithetical to Scripture. I mean, if you want to be grateful, you've got to know you're a leper. But nobody wants to be a leper. Nobody wants to see their absolute desperate need. Nobody wants to confess and stand up and say, you know what, I'm without a prayer, save God. I mean, I don't have a hope. I cannot beat myself out of a paper bag apart from his grace. So I, I think if we're ever going to move to this gratitude that is, that is instructed to us by the Samaritan, you've got to know from where you've come. I mean, I try on a regular basis to look over my life and I've shared this before with you. Look at my marriage, how I've handled Carol, the kids, the church, the community. I want to confess my sins. I don't want to forget from where I've come. I did not, I was not born a Christian. You were not born a Christian. You may be a nice person. Give God credit for that. But if you don't understand the spiritual leprosy from what you have been, from where you've been drawn, you'll never be fully grateful. I think that's the argument. You know, Paul tells us to give thanks. He says in Colossians, he says, give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Do you believe that? If you believe that you are a captive, you were a prisoner, you were part of that dark kingdom. But most of us, I think we struggle believing that. 
He says he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I guess I want us, you, you know, that Israeli soldier that had been captured by Hamas and I think kept for five years. And, you know, he was released 30 or 60 days ago. Do you think he'll ever forget the five years he spent in captivity? He had, he just was, his life was run, always in fear of death. Just, he understood what it means to be in a dominion of darkness. And I have to imagine that it's going to take him a long time to get used to the normalcy and the joy of freedom, satisfaction, food, freedom to move around. So if we want to grow in gratitude, folks, there has to be that, that recognition, that acceptance with joy that I was a spiritual leper. I, I didn't have anything going for me. God didn't look on me and say, you know what? He looks like he's going to be a good one. I'm going to choose him. It, it has to be seen from this. I, I, I was without hope. I was without hope, save his mercy. But, but then secondly, I think our gratitude born out of that has to be founded on God. And this is what I mean by this. Uh, oftentimes we are grateful to God for his gifts, and, and so ought we to be. But those displace our gratefulness to God himself. In other words, when we just love the blessings of God without loving God, then we turn him into a means to an end. Really, what we become is guilty of idolatry because we love his blessings more than we love him, and loving something subordinate to him is making one an idolater. And so true gratitude has to be born out of, first, a love for the excellency of God. Yes, we love his gifts, but we love his gifts like the rays of sun lead us to the sun. Or we love his gifts like walking into the house and catching the scent of a pie. We don't want to just sit in the scent, we want the pie. And so all the gifts of God are to show us the glory of the pie. It's not to show us the glory of the gift. Jonathan Edwards makes this clear. He's a theologian of the um, 18th century in his ministry in the Northeast. And here's what he wrote. He said, um, True gratitude or thankfulness to God for his kindness to us arises from a foundation laid before of love to God for what he is in himself. Whereas a natural gratitude has no such antecedent foundation. In other words, a natural gratitude is just born out of whatever I've gotten lately. The gracious stirrings of grateful affection to God for kindness received always are from a stock of love already in the heart, established in the first place on other grounds. That is God's own excellency. In other words, the natural man cannot truly be grateful to God. The natural man cannot be grateful. Because he doesn't have a love for God in his heart. It would be like me being thankful to Carol without loving her. There is a mercenary aspect to it. Give me, give me, I'll take, I'll take, but I have no love for you. Gratitude, folks, it's not just what you have. So around the table at Thanksgiving, I would encourage you to consider just telling one another to give word to the love that you have for God for God not just for what God's done for you. That does express the kindness of God. I don't, I don't want to minimize that. I just want to make it secondary to God himself. In fact, Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, said this. He says, gratitude is the characteristic attitude of the redeemed man. He says, 
I am a poor wretch whom God took charge of and for whom he has done so indescribably much more than I ever expected that I only long for the peace of eternity in order to nothing but thank him, just to thank him. And, and then thirdly, so gratitude is born out of a recognition of your leprosy, your spiritual leprosy, your untouchableness. And it's born out of a love for God. Thirdly, gratitude is always expressed to Christ. Now, again, in our culture, we, we have kind of embraced this thing called a therapeutic gospel, and I've explained that. That is that we look at Jesus as somebody who can better my life. Where does the therapist? We go to a therapist to help us live. We go to a therapist to help us have a better life. And, and we have turned Jesus into helping us be better people. There is a place for that. We call it sanctification. But, but a lot of times we're just looking at Jesus to give us these gifts of a better life. And I think the scripture is calling us, if we're going to walk in a biblical gratitude, I think that our gratitude for God in Christ has to be founded upon the work of Christ, on the cross of Christ, that he has delivered us, that he has redeemed us, that he is taking upon himself our sin and our shame and our guilt, that the gospel is the bedrock of your gratitude, that you're thankful to him for what he has done for you on the cross, dying, bearing your sins, dying, establishing your righteousness, and rising for your justification. It has to be born in that context, that if we're grateful for anything, I'm grateful to God for Christ because he has died for me, he has been raised to new life, and he is going to draw me to the Father. That my hope for eternal life with God forever is grounded in Christ, and Christ alone. There is nothing I'm bringing to the table except the sin that I so gladly placed upon the Son. That's all I bring to the table. By faith, I believe that he's everything for me. Folks, your gratitude has got to always be directed towards the beauty of Christ and to what he has done for you. I mean, all the scriptures support this. He says, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord. And Hebrews, through Jesus, let us offer to God a sacrifice of praise. In Revelation, that new song of the redeemed that we will sing upon our death. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb to take the scroll, open its seals, for he was slain. And with your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. You've made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God. In other words, the praise that we will offer to God will be to Christ for him being a perfect servant. In fact, I often think there is a, a song that we're going to sing, uh, a song that we will sing at the end of the service um, called Thank You. And uh, I was reading, I, I saw this quote in a book called Dialogue, Catalog, and Monologue, and it's about glorifying God. He says, I've often wondered perhaps in part simply because the term is so rarely used today, what it might mean to glorify God forever, glorify Christ forever. It will undoubtedly mean a great many things, but one of them must surely be that we will continually thank him. We will thank him for his gracious and goodness, graciousness and goodness to us and for inviting us into the conversation. Along this line, I think that we could anticipate our chief and highest end every time we behold something beautiful, and find that after we have exclaimed, ah, how wonderful, we are most compelled to say thank you. Here's what he says that I like. Our destiny is to say these small words, thank you, forever. And so experience the gratitude that is the perfection of our happiness, that our happiness will be increased 
completed in saying thank you to him. And then the last, the last truth that I would apply to you about gratitude. So gratitude has to be born out of your awareness that you're spiritual lepers. Gratitude has to be founded on an existing love for God, that God is worthy of all of this. That gratitude is to be expressed through Christ. But the gratitude must be just that. It must be expressed. That we, through words, are called to express our thankfulness to God. That, that we are expressing our happiness. It can be in corporate worship here. It can be walking outside. It could be talking with your family. Expressing gratitude to God. I, I think about the, if you remember, so Jesus calms the lake. He displays his glory to his disciples. They get to the other side of the lake. The, the man possessed with so many demons is there. Jesus, of course, cleanses him of all those demons. And the man says, well, I want to follow you. And who wouldn't, right? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, go back to your hometown and tell them all that God has done for you. Give words, give praise. Express your thankfulness by talking to people about all that God has done for you. That, that, that is our, the great thing about us expressing our thankfulness C.S. Lewis makes this point that, that, I, that I've loved, and uh, here it is. He says, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. In other words, when, when, Carol I, experience, when I experience something enjoyable, I want to share it with her. It's more fun. There's a greater degree of enjoyment when I give verbal expression to what we've enjoyed. And so it is with worship that we're called to express praise to God. In all situations we do. Folks, not just when it's good, but when it's bad. We can always praise God. Because why? Because the stockpile of our gratitude is that God is excellent and good. Everything he does in your life is good. It may not be pain-free. It may be initially difficult. But that which he does is good. You know, if you remember about 17 years ago, there was a tragic story on I-94 around Chicago. And that story of when um, a piece of metal fell off a truck, bounced along, and punctured the gas tank of a van traveling behind it. Uh, this was the Willis family. And if you remember, the, the van became like an inferno. And uh, there were six children and two parents in the van. And, of course, it just erupted just lightning fast speed. And the parents, I believe, were only able to save two out of six. And the, uh, when the medical and the rescue personnel got there, the husband and the wife were having to be, tra- they both were burned terribly trying to retrieve their children, trying to save them, were being placed uh, in different ambulances. And the husband cries out uh, to the wife and says, Psalm 34. That's all he said to her. Now, Psalm 34 is, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. Now, them doing that, by the grace of God, has removed from us the ability to say, well, you can only praise him when things go well. They had a stockpile of understanding God's good. He was a pastor, faithful to the Lord. 
He knew that God was good and that all things work for good. Was this a tragic, life-altering experience? Absolutely. Would any of us want to go through this? Not in 10 lifetimes. But the grace of God was sufficient for him to be able to recognize, I will praise the Lord at all times. We can always give thanks to God for what he has done for us in Christ. Folks, situations are going to befall us that we can't even imagine in this life. But he will still be good. God's character will never change. His giving to us of Christ has been established. It's been completed. Christ now is at the right hand of the Father. We always have reason to give thanks to God. Rejoice again, always I say. Paul says it's the will of God that you give thanks in all situations, even the bad ones. Does it mean that we don't mourn, that we don't weep and struggle? Yes, of course we do those things. But underneath of that, you have those arms of God upholding you. I have displayed my goodness to you. I have revealed and given my son for you. You shall be forever mine. And so we can always give thanks in all situations to the Father for the work of the Son in the Spirit. So let's take a few minutes now and do that. Let us just give thanks to God for who he is and what he has done for us in Christ. And then uh, David will close us in just a minute. Father, we are overwhelmed at your goodness to us as revealed to us in Christ. We want to be a thankful people. We know that thanklessness is a mark of no faith. We want to be thankful and grateful. Father, would you give us the grace to be that way, to display your worth and glory and goodness in our thankfulness.